This past week, I ordered a book. It's called Three Mile an Hour God. God at three miles an hour. And the question the book is trying to answer is, why did Jesus come to the world in the first century instead of the 21st century? I mean, just stop and think about this. God came to the world in a day and time when there are no planes, trains, and automobiles, in a day and time when the chief mode of transportation was walking. And the average walking speed for a human being is three miles an hour. So God chose, intentionally chose, to come to the world at a time when you couldn't do things fast, you could only do them slowly. Why? Think of all the advantages Jesus would have had if he'd waited till the 21st century to come and put himself on display. Television, radio, the internet, Facebook. I mean, think how much more quickly and efficiently he could have gotten the word out. Think of how much easier and simpler it would have been for him to spread his message all over the globe. But then, on the other hand, if he was living today instead of back then, that would have meant also that maybe some of his teachings would have taken on a different meaning. Like that day when he was talking to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he said to them, follow me. Well, in our world, our context, follow me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter. Hey, guys, you don't have to actually be with me. You can just kind of watch and learn from a distance. You know, I'm not talking about anything super serious. We can just kind of keep this connection kind of casual. You know, we can just kind of like each other and be friends on Facebook. I'm not asking for a lot of sacrifice and commitment here. But back in the first century world, those words, follow me, would have had a completely different meaning. In a world where in order to communicate, in order to get your message across, you had to physically be there face to face and talk to people. To engage in any kind of ministry activity, whether it's attending a wedding or helping at a funeral, you'd have to actually walk to that particular location. And it would take you a while to get there. You couldn't do things fast. You had to do them slowly. And maybe that's the point. Maybe God chose to come to the world when he did so that he could demonstrate his love for us by actually being there and looking directly into a person's eye and holding that child in his arms and getting close enough to the sick and the hurting where they could actually touch him when they asked for his help. See, that, I think that's what God really wanted. He wanted to be able to communicate his care and compassion for us in a way that's very, very personal. Uh, to me, one of the most remarkable things about Jesus and how he loved others is how he was, when he was with somebody, he was really with them. I mean, totally present. He wasn't just physically present. He was mentally and emotionally connected to that person who was standing right in front of him. I mean, have you ever noticed in all the Bible, you never hear Jesus say, what was that? I'm sorry. I wasn't listening. I wasn't paying attention. Man, my mind's been on something else. I tell you, recently, I've just been so distracted by all this work I've got to do as a Messiah. Uh, tell me again, what was that you were trying to say? You never hear Jesus say that. Why? Because when he was with somebody, he was really with them. I mean, fully aware, fully in tune with the needs and concerns of that person that was standing right in front of him. Remember the picture we have of this in John chapter 13? On the night before the cross, Jesus is in the upper room with all of his disciples. And the Bible says there in John chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, it says, And having loved his own, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Now that's an interesting expression, the full extent of his love. What does that mean? Well, maybe it means here at the very end of his life and ministry, here in the last night before he dies, he still loves his disciples. He hasn't given up on them. He still cares, and that's wonderful. But I wonder if maybe there was something more meant by that expression, and he now showed them the full extent of his love. In other words, Jesus was getting ready to do something to show the ultimate way in which he loved them. 
And to me, the fascinating thing about that is when you think about there in John chapter 13, what he's getting ready to do. Jesus is getting ready to do something that's just incredibly common and mundane. He's getting ready to wash their feet. I mean, that'd be like on the 50th wedding anniversary. Here's Bob and Sally, and they're celebrating 50 years of marriage. And on their 50th wedding anniversary, Bob showed his wife, Sally, the, the full extent of his love. He mopped the kitchen floor. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is getting ready to do as he washes their feet. He's doing a job that nobody else wanted to do, and yet it was a job that needed to be done. Because in that world, with all the walking that people did, whether with sandals or barefoot, by the end of the day, the feet would become incredibly dirty and smelly. So it was never pleasant, never, to bend down and stay on your knees and grab those ugly feet with all their sores and blisters, and then to have to take the time, and it always took a lot of time, to wash and clean those feet that were just so caked with mud. And of all the people in the room that night, Jesus should have been the last one doing this. He's the rabbi. They're the students. He's the leader. They're the followers. I mean, in the ancient world, there's not one bit of evidence. There's not one single example in all the ancient literature of any rabbi ever stooping down to wash his disciples' feet. And yet that's exactly what we see Jesus doing here. And then you think about this. In that room on that night, Jesus is the neediest person of all. I mean, he's just hours away from a very cruel and violent death. If anybody needed to be served on this particular night, if anybody needed to be loved and cared for, it was Jesus. And yet instead of asking and expecting the others to serve him, no, the Bible tells us while well, the rest are still eating and talking, it says, and Jesus got up from the meal and he took off his robe and he wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured some water in a basin and very slowly and very carefully he washed everyone's feet. Now, that's the kind of love that we're talking about today when the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 5, and verse 22, and the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's not an easy kind of love to practice. In fact, I contend it's not something we can do on our own. This kind of love's not natural. It's supernatural. And the only way this kind of love's going to be exhibited in your life and mine is when it comes as the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit actually working in your life and mine. So understand something. What does it really mean to be a Christian? Uh, way back in the 1970s, when the relationship between the United States and Russia was a lot more tense and hostile than it is right now, there was something intriguing that happened. There was this Russian, back there in the 1970s, there was this Russian pilot who one day flew his plane from a base there in Russia, and then he landed at an American Air Force base in Japan. And as soon as he landed the plane, he asked for asylum. So immediately he was taken back to the United States where he was debriefed, and given a new name and a new identity. I mean, immediately they began the process of setting up everything where he can now become a permanent resident of the United States of America. So overnight, instantly, his status changed. Uh, from this moment on, he was no longer going to be in Russia. From this moment on, he was going to live in America. No longer would he have to live under the rule of this oppressive totalitarian government. From this moment on, he's going to be a free man in a free land, free to enjoy all the advantages of living in a very wealthy, very prosperous country. I mean, it was just amazing the change that occurred in his life, and it happened so quickly. And yet there were other things that didn't happen quite so quickly. You see this former Russian pilot now living in America, he now found himself in a new environment, and he was going to have to learn to speak a new language. Well, that was going to take some time. Not only that, he's in a completely different kind of a culture. So the habits, patterns, mindset that worked for him while he was living back there in Russia, 
that's not going to work here in America because the way they do things in Russia is not how we do things here in the United States. So learning how to adjust and adapt to this new lifestyle, that was going to take a while. Overnight, he goes from being a Russian to being an American. But learning how to live as an American, that was going to be a lifelong learning process. Well, is that not similar to what happens when we become a Christian? I mean, overnight, remarkable changes occur. Instantly, we've got a new status. We're no longer lost. We're now saved. We're no longer condemned. We now have God's full approval. Our names have been written, already written in the Lamb's book of life. We are already guaranteed a place in the new heavens and the new earth. And not only instantly do we have a new status, immediately we take on a new identity. We now belong to Jesus. We are Christians. We now live under his leadership. Satan no longer has any kind of authority over us. But though there are many immediate changes in our outward standing with God, yet on the inside (laughs) of us, There's still a lot of work to do. You see, when you become a Christian, you now find yourself in a new culture with a new agenda where you're expected to move in a new direction. You can't live the way you used to. And learning how to adjust and adapt to this new lifestyle, that's going to take a while. So you see, the conversion from sinner to saint, from being lost to being saved, that happens instantly. But learning how to live as a Christian, that's going to be a lifelong learning process. And to help us with that, That's why God gave us the Holy Spirit. Now, all of that is behind the verse that we're going to be studying today. So take a look at this with me. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. The Apostle Paul is writing to his his brothers and sisters in Christ living in the area of Galatia, what we know today as modern Turkey. And he says to him, my dear children, has a lot of affection for these people. They're, They're precious to him. They're important to him. He says, for whom I am again, he's gone through this process before, he's going to go through it again. For whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, trying to help these people, trying to love these people, trying to get them to where God wants them to be, it's anything but easy. For whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. See, the Apostle Paul, whenever he's working with people, he always has a goal in mind. Number one, bring them to Jesus. And then once that happened, once he's got that connection, then he continues to work with them until you can see Jesus living in them. Where every moment of every day they begin to think like Jesus would think and act like Jesus would act and treat other people the way Jesus would. But both, in both cases, bringing somebody to Jesus and then teaching them how to live like Jesus on the part of the Apostle Paul, helping them to reach that goal, that's going to require a lot of energy and a lot of effort. Remember when you were first married and how it was just you and your spouse and, you know, just husband and wife sitting here at the dinner table. And you remember how pleasant that was because everything on the table is just neat and tidy. And then you had a baby (laughs) and things changed. Life was never the same again. You know, you decided to expand your family and bring somebody else into your world. And all of a sudden life at the dinner table got messy. It got really messy. Why? Because babies spill things and they throw things and they drop things. And trying to help that little one learn how to eat can be exasperating and frustrating and time-consuming. I mean, from this moment on, you rarely have an opportunity to just enjoy a meal for yourself because you're always so busy trying to help the little one get that food into their mouth. And that's just life in the early years. They go from that stage of being an infant to a toddler and from a toddler to the preschool and from the preschool to the elementary. And the whole time you're trying to teach your child how to behave at the table, how how to have manners, what's appropriate to talk about the dinner table, what's not appropriate to talk about the dinner table, how to be civil with their brothers and sisters and not fight and argue all the time. 
I mean, learning how to love that child and help that child learn how to love and get along with others can be so challenging. And that's just life at the dinner table, not to mention all the other arenas of life where that little one's got a lot of learning and growing up to do. Being a parent is anything but easy. Now, of course, you can just avoid all this chaos. You can choose to keep that table neat and tidy and choose not to have children. We just won't let anybody else sit here. And you will never have to worry about any messes ever again. But that also means you won't enjoy any new relationships either. You see, sometimes it takes a messy table to create memories that you couldn't have if you chose to keep that table neat and tidy. Now, there's nobody who understands and appreciates this more than God himself. He knows the pain and effort that is required in order to build a healthy relationship. In fact, I contend it is impossible to have a meaningful relationship with anybody else unless it's going to cost you something. Think about God from God's perspective and what he's experienced. Like Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve has sinned. They've broken this bond with God. Now for the very first time, Adam and Eve, they're, they're embarrassed, ashamed. For the very first time, they fear being seen and known by God. So what do they do? They run and hide. And the interesting thing is God lets them do that. Why? Because God knows that to have real love, and that's what he's seeking here, real love from Adam and Eve, to have that real love, it's not something that can be forced or coerced. Because God doesn't want just compliance. He wants something more than that. He wants connection. So right now, there's this distance between God and Adam and Eve. God's not content with this. I don't want us to be distant and apart. I want us to be close again. But in order to create that closeness, that means he's going to have to be careful in how he approaches them. So instead of just barging into the Garden of Eden and barking out orders and overwhelming Adam and Eve with brute force. No, Genesis chapter 3, he comes walking three miles an hour. He just comes walking into the Garden of Eden gently quietly, patiently, calling out to Adam and Eve, uh, where are you? Well, God knows where they are. But you see why he's asking the question? He's inviting a response. He's opening the door so they can participate in this process too. In order to have that bond, we've got to have love. I mean, a real bond here. We've got to have love coming from both directions. So he's trying to encourage that response. Think of it like this. You ever have a, a teenager? I I'm sorry. I went through this myself, so I'm not picking on you, okay? But you ever have a teenager who had trouble getting out of bed this morning? Talk to my parents, and they'll tell you they went through this experience, okay? You ever have trouble with uh, the teenager getting out of bed in the morning and getting to school on time? So how do you help correct that behavior? Well, there's a number of strategies you can employ. Number one, you could buy an alarm clock, set it right next to the bed where every morning the noise of the alarm just jolts them out of bed. That'll provoke a response. Or every morning you could come walking in the room and yell in their ear and shake the bed, and that'll create a response too. But isn't there a better and healthier way to encourage a change in their behavior? Sure. Every morning you get up early and you prepare breakfast, where even in the bedroom they can hear the sound, the eggs and bacon crackling on the stove, and they can smell the aroma of the cinnamon rolls coming out of the oven. And now they willingly open their eyes. They're not forced out of bed by some noisy alarm or somebody rudely yelling in their ear. No, they can feel the tug and they're hungry. There's something delicious and delightful inviting and drawing them out. Listen, I understand there are going to be cases, certain cases of stubborn rebellion where compliance has to be enforced before you can ever get to that stage of connection. I, I get that. 
But the long-term goal here is this bond where you've got love coming from both directions. And in order to create that kind of environment, it's going to take a lot of energy, a lot of our effort on our part to help draw them into that. So the question becomes, where does that energy come from? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Every day, the Holy Spirit is just constantly, consistently inviting and drawing us into a life with Jesus. Every day, encouraging and promoting this connection with Christ. Because it's out of that relationship with Jesus that now, He creates a new life in us. I've used this analogy before. Forgive me for repeating, but I just can't think of any better way to explain this. Think of a married couple and how they produce offspring, physical fruit. In the moment of conception, the husband and wife are not thinking about the mechanics of making a child. No, in that profound moment of intimacy, they are so swept up in their love for each other, they're not thinking about anybody else. But out of the joy and excitement of being able to share their love with each other, a child is conceived, fruit is produced. So it is with the Holy Spirit. Rob explained this last Sunday morning. The role of the Holy Spirit is to put a spotlight on Jesus. So now in a fresh and powerful way, we can behold His glory, the glory of who He is, and really begin to appreciate the glory of what He's done for us. And it is that glory that draws us in. We are now swept up into an intimate, interactive life with Jesus. And out of that union, that relationship with Jesus... Suddenly there's a new attitude, a new demeanor, a new lifestyle in us. A lifestyle of love and joy and peace and patience. See, the fruit doesn't come about by focusing upon the fruit, the attributes. No, the fruit comes about as we focus upon Jesus. As we stay engaged, deeply engaged with Him every day. And out of that life with Jesus, His love changes who we are. And it doesn't happen quickly. It occurs slowly over a long period of time, just like those vegetables that grow in your garden or the apples that appear in the tree, they only come out after a long season of growth. Scientists tell us that it takes a full 20 minutes for the brain to get the message from the stomach that we're full. Hey, had enough to eat. 20 minutes for the message to get from here to here, which is why nutritionists are always encouraging us, eat slowly. You eat too fast, you'll end up eating way more and consuming a lot more than what you actually need. Well, what's true physically is also true spiritually. It takes a while to digest the truth. It takes a while to feel the impact of what we've already received. That's why I believe here in Galatians chapter 5, when the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit, it begins and ends that passage of Scripture by encouraging us, walk with the Spirit, day after day, at a slow, steady, three-mile-an-hour-per-hour pace where every day in common, simple, mundane ways, you stay connected to Christ, you stay engaged with Him, and it's out of that life and relationship with Jesus that He produces a new life in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I just pray that you would uh, stir up that desire. You would stir up that thirst, that holy thirst that we were singing about earlier this morning. Where we begin to yearn for a life, a union, a relationship with Jesus. God, I just pray as you are always fully aware and fully in tune with us, may your Holy Spirit enable us to be more fully aware 
and more fully in tune with you so that by your love you can create those changes in each one of our lives. God, today, strengthen and enhance that connection that we have with Jesus. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.